And so we praise you, Lord Jesus. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you. And we ask now that you would help us to preach your word in truth. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Hey, our next Jesus story comes from Mark chapter 2. It's kind of the next one in a series of stories that we've been following along in the Synoptic Gospels, but it's just chapter 2 in the the book of Mark. Mark Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when Jesus, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. Literally, he was at house. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his his head. So we think it was probably Peter's home because he'd been hanging out with Peter. So Jesus was at home in Peter's house, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says that the reason he came was to preach. Some scholars argue that this is why he is now in Peter's house preaching. It's in order to control the mob of people that want to be healed and create a space for preaching. Jesus put a tremendous value on preaching the word. And yet in our society, it seems that we have lost respect for preaching the word. Preaching requires attention and it requires... Francis, I'm... I'm I'm preaching. That can wait till after the service. Preaching requires attention and focus. Francis, I came to preach the word, all right? You're interrupting the preaching of the word right now, and so you can just take your, your little sicko, and you and your deacons can go just right on outside. I want you to stay off the roof. We're preaching the word, okay? So get, get, get on out of here. Now, I, I apologize. Oh, look, he's healed. Anyway, I apologize. I apologize for that. But let's get back to preaching the word. Verse 2, he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed, literally, in the Greek, they unroofed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, to answer your question, especially if you're new, yes, uh, that little thing right there with Francis uh, was, was scripted, set up, but, and, and Braden. But did you see, did, did, I, I want you to see, uh, that um, we get used to these stories in Scripture, and we don't recognize really how scandalous they are, because that was a little bit weird just now. In that society, a rabbi commanded far more respect than a pastor does in ours. It's hard to even imagine in our society someone breaking through the roof of a church service in the middle of a sermon. Now, some people point out that roofs uh, weren't as nice in Jesus' day, but let me also remind you that they did not have power tools in Jesus' day. So I bet it was just as much of a pain in the butt back then as it would be right now. The roofs in that day were constructed of saplings and thatch and clay. And so to fix a roof might easily take several days. But more than that, imagine the interruption. Jesus is preaching. The scribes are present. The scribes were the experts in the law of Moses and theology. All are straining to listen, and you hear this noise uh, banging around up on the roof. I mean, it must be a bit tense, right? Because the scribes are evaluating Jesus, and Jesus has just been casting out demons. I mean, who knows what this guy's going to do? 
Suddenly, there's a hole. Faces, open sky, sticks and clay and mud. They drop down on Jesus and the religious dignitaries. Verse 4. Uh, they literally unroofed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the paralytic on which uh, 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 the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. And, and, and I bet they never had seen anything uh, like that. I, I think, yeah, they hadn't. Probably we haven't because there's just so very much that's wrong with this story. Number one, these guys interrupt the preacher. It's not okay to interrupt the preacher. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, if you don't believe me, all things should be done decently and in order. Interrupting worship services to serve your own agenda is not okay. This was not an emergency. These guys could have waited to the end of the sermon, okay? And number two, these guys have a blatant disregard for private property. And Jesus doesn't seem to care. And that's really what's kind of troublesome. Number three, Jesus forgives them as if, it's his, if it's, as, as, as if it's his property. But it's Peter's property. I mean, if I'm Peter, and by the way, I am Peter, but if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, hey, Jesus, I invited you into my house. I built this house. I paid for this house. These guys wrecked my roof, and you forgive them? It's not your roof. Tell them to fix my roof, Jesus. That's, that's what I'd be thinking. Might not say it, but be thinking. Well, I've actually been to Peter's house, and I took this picture. Now, archaeologists know that this is Peter's house because, you see, it has no roof. See it? <laughs> actually, in the 60s and 70s, archaeologists began excavating this site in Capernaum. And under many of these uh, rock walls, they found the remains of a first century house. And on this site, several churches had been built from the first century through the seventh century around and over this one spot, venerating this site and one particular room. You, have the, you showed that other diagram, Michaela? This one room in, in that site. Okay, now back to the other one. These fifth century walls are built on those first century walls, the first century walls of that room, and in these remains they found Peter's name and Jesus' name inscribed on the foundation and the walls. And so scholars are fairly confident that this was, in fact, Peter's house, and even that this room was, in fact, the room over which the four guys unroofed the roof. Now, you can hear all kinds of sermons about how Ingenious, determined, and persistent these guys were. 
but I think it's kind of obvious, and I think Mark is making it kind of obvious, that these guys were, well, kind of jerks. I mean, Mark doesn't say that Jesus was impressed with them. He was impressed with something he saw in them. They, they were like bags of dirt, but in them, he saw faith. Maybe it was only the size of like a seed, you know, like a mustard seed, but it was faith. He saw a bag of dirt and a seed of faith. He saw their faith. But faith in what? That's another thing wrong with, with this story. These guys had never read a gospel tract explaining the plan of salvation. I doubt they had faith that Jesus had suffered and died for their sins. How could they? I mean, that, that hadn't happened in space and time as they knew it. I, I doubt they had faith in his substitutionary atonement. But gosh, these scribes, they had faith. If anyone had faith, they had faith. I mean, they were experts on Scripture, right? I mean, they had a faith in, in the way it worked, experts on atonement and, and the sacrificial system. Yet Jesus seems entirely unimpressed with their faith and very impressed with these four guys' faith. They didn't have faith in a, in a what, a system. They, they had faith in a who, a person. They trusted that although they were not very good, Jesus was very good. The scribes didn't trust that Jesus was very good. They trusted their own knowledge of, of the good. The four men had faith in the goodness of Jesus. The scribes had faith in their own knowledge of good and, and evil. Their faith was a good work. And so it wasn't faith. Faith is trust in a person to the credit of the person you trust. Jesus saw their faith. The faith of the, of the four guys and said, Son, paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, and, and we don't even know if the one forgiven has faith. That's, that's another thing. He hasn't confessed his faith. That's number five. It's as if your faith doesn't pay for forgiveness, and yet your faith can affect other people's forgiveness. So moms and dads, li listen close. You can have faith for others. And Jesus seems to really like that sort of unselfish faith. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and, and the guy hadn't even, he hadn't even confessed his sins. That's number six. It's as if your confession doesn't pay for forgiveness. And, and one other thing, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, but the guy, the guy didn't sin against Jesus, did he? I mean, who is Jesus to forgive sins? That's, that's actually a pretty good question. That's what the scribes were thinking. That's what Peter must have been thinking. Thanks a lot, Jesus, for forgiving the guys who just ruined my roof. Forgiving them. Understand? Forgiveness means that these guys don't owe Peter a new roof. They did owe Peter a new roof until Jesus said, you're forgiven. And Peter went, oh. See, this is important to know. If in case you ever, perchance, need to forgive somebody. Forgiveness means that the one you forgive is released from paying you a debt. Forgiveness does not mean that there was no debt. In fact, you have to have a debt in order to have forgiveness. For, for, at least forgiveness of debts or forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, then, is not lying about sin. 
Forgiveness is not excusing sin. Forgiveness does not mean sin is okay. And granting forgiveness is not the same thing as granting trust. And forgiveness doesn't mean there will be no discipline. I may forgive my son for wrecking the car on Friday night, farting around with his friends. And that means that he doesn't have to buy me another car. But it does not mean that I trust him with the next car. Or that he's not grounded. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there won't be discipline. Actually, one day we'll see that uh, forgiveness is perhaps the most powerful form of discipline of all. Why? Because true forgiveness burns away pride and creates gratitude. Forgiveness changes people from the inside out. Romans 2, 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There is no act more powerful than forgiveness. But make no mistake, forgiveness hurts. The forgiven doesn't pay, but the forgiver does pay. And that's why it seems kind of wrong for Jesus to say to these, these guys who, who bust through Peter's roof, you're forgiven. Unless, of course, it's not Peter's roof. But Jesus is roof. And think about that. Where did Peter get the clay? Did Peter make the clay? Peter didn't make the trees that formed the beams. Peter didn't make the plants that formed the thatch. God did. And Peter took them. So if these guys stole from Peter, they were actually stealing from God. It was God's roof. And so the scribes are right in saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? Because all sin is really sin against God alone. After committing adultery with Bathsheba and taking Uriah's life, Psalm 51, David prays this, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. And we might say, hey, um, it was Uriah's life Maybe you sinned a little bit against him, David. It was Uriah's life that you took. But Jesus says, I am the life. That means if you think your life is really your own life, either it's not life or you've taken Jesus' life. Hey, do you um, remember when we took Jesus' life on the tree? See, maybe we take his life every moment that we consider his life to be our life, and not as a gift, but as a possession. And so sin isn't a small thing, it's everything. Everything that we do apart from gratitude for grace. Well, Jesus forgives this guy his sin, as if Peter's roof was... Um, his roof, and he forgives this guy all his sins, as if all life was actually his life. I mean, he's acting as if he's, if he's God. So, so, of course, the scribes murmur about blasphemy. The Hebrew word for blasphemy literally means to pierce. They accuse Jesus of blaspheming God, but, you know, maybe they're blaspheming God. In three years, they'll pierce him with nails as he cries, Father, forgive them. See, they think the forgiveness thing has gone too far. They think Jesus, which literally means God is salvation, they think he's just gone too far. 
You see, Jesus forgives without a confession of faith. Jesus forgives without a confession of sin. Jesus forgives as if he was God and all judgment has been given unto him. And number eight, Jesus forgives as if all has already been forgiven. Is Jesus not aware that he has not yet been crucified? You would think you'd be aware of that. He looks at this paralyzed guy and says, your sins are forgiven. Present tense. In, in most ancient manuscripts, and in Luke chapter 5, he actually says, your sins have been forgiven. Perfect tense. Either way, though, it's a done deal. A done deal at least three years before the crucifixion. I mean, Jesus acts like he really did take away the sins of the world, like John 1 says. And that he actually did uh, that. He did take away the sins of the world from the foundation of the world, like Revelation 13. I mean, it's if that tree, that cross, stands at the boundary of space, time, and eternity, so that Jesus really did die once and for all, for all space, all time, and all sin. So maybe all sin really is forgiven. Now, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you may say to yourself, but um, hey, if all sin is forgiven, what's the unforgivable sin? And what's blasphemy against the Spirit that won't be forgiven? Next chapter, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of Adam. All, all sins. Now, take that in, okay? All sins except, now, don't you want to know what the except is? All sins except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, what's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What's the one sin that won't be forgiven? Well, Jesus tells us. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive you your trespasses. The unforgivable sin is unforgiveness. And we refuse to forgive because we don't believe that we've been forgiven. And we don't believe that we've been forgiven because we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to the work of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't believe we're forgiven and we don't forgive because we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So believing that you're unforgiven is unforgivable. You understand? If you wreck the roof and God forgives you, it means, hey, don't have to fix the roof. He's letting it go. But if you believe God has not forgiven you in Christ Jesus, that's unforgivable. Forgive, ephemi, literally means to let or to allow. Do you understand? God will not let unforgiveness remain. For a time, you may weep and gnash your teeth in outer darkness, but at the end of time, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and his glory is grace. All has been forgiven, but some still weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness, refusing to forgive because they refuse to believe they are forgiven. Marcus Bart used to tell a story, and I think it may be a true story. It's about a group of thieves that robbed a bank in Florida and uh, fled, and as they fled, they dropped all the gold because it was just too much for them to carry. They hid in the Florida Everglades, imprisoned 
by alligators and snakes, but most of all imprisoned in fear. Meanwhile, there was a trial. The judge found them guilty, but then commuted the sentence and granted a full pardon. The uh, the authorities sent search parties out into the swamp looking for the thieves in order to announce to them that they had been forgiven, pardoned. And yet every time the thieves heard the dogs barking, they ran deeper into the swamp and hid paralyzed with fear. And then Bart would ask his seminary students, were they forgiven? Well, objectively... Yeah, I mean, forgiveness was an objective reality. The debt had been paid. But forgiveness was not their subjective reality because they did not have faith in the judge. Well, Jesus says this. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And yet he forgave when we would not forgive. And Paul writes, forgive as God has forgiven you. So to forgive is to be forgiven. And to be forgiven is to forgive. And the only way I can make sense of all that is to postulate like another reality, another realm, like a kingdom, where all is forgiven and no one pays and everything is grace, like an ocean of grace. Or like a mighty river of of life. And the river flows into you as it flows out of you. So to be forgiven is to forgive. And to forgive is to be forgiven. And I think that place is called heaven. Or reality. Think about it. If God is the creator, what could you give him that he hasn't first given to you. And if God is the creator, what could you take from him that he hadn't first given you the ability to take? Even if you took his life, all-powerful, all-knowing, outside of space and time, even if you took his life, it could only be due to the fact that he forgave his life from the foundation of the world. And so forgiveness, a me, forgiveness is, is reality. It's eternal. It's the kingdom of God. And unforgiveness is our own reality, our false reality, where we weep and gnash our teeth. It's like we each create a fortress of unforgiveness. It's built with stones, and it has a solid roof. It's the belief that we have paid or that we will have to pay, and everybody must pay. We think it protects us from pain, and for a time, it does. It protects us from pain, and it protects us from life. Our fortress is our prison, and outside is the kingdom of God. Outside is eternal life. Sickness and death are an absence of life. Now this may be one more thing that puzzles you about this story. Jesus acts like disease is the result of sin. And of course it is. God said to Adam, the day you eat of it, you will die. We all live in that day, the sixth day. We're all dying, for we have all chosen death. 
So all sickness is a sign like your own impending death is a sign. My heart attack was a sign. Your sickness is a sign. A sign that the soul of humanity is sick. In John 9, the disciples see a blind man and they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus replies, it was not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned. In other words, he's not blind because he sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Maybe we sinned, and maybe we're all dying in order that the work of God might be displayed in us. And the work of God is forgiveness in Christ Jesus our Lord. And maybe we've always been Forgiven, I mean given our lives, ourselves, all things, but we're not finished in the image of God until we know that we're forgiven and we come to know that we're forgiven and all is forgiven when we see that our sins are forgiven in Jesus and then we live to the praise of God's glorious grace. To live is to freely receive life and freely give life. Like every member of your body, receives blood and gives blood, bleeds blood. The life is in the blood. But the moment that you try to hang on to the blood, the moment you try to own the blood, you damn the life and the logos and you're, you're paralyzed. See, the scribes thought the life belonged to them and their souls were paralyzed. Peter probably thought the life belonged to him. I mean. Jesus was staying at his house, right? They thought they controlled the life, and Jesus is the life. And then they were all interrupted. C.S. Lewis wrote this. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending a person, the life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. You know, maybe even when someone sins against you, you're being interrupted with life, your real life. Even if the interrupter intends it for evil, God intends it for good, he's calling you to bleed for another. He's calling you to life. Whose life? His, his life. Jesus said, what's easier to say? Take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven? That's a fascinating question because this man's sins were forgiven by the blood of Jesus. When you forgive, you begin to bleed. His blood. and live your real life, his life in you. Well, when, when the man walked, you see, when the man walked to the scribes, it proved that Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sin, all sin, all debt, all broken roofing. So what's wrong with this story? Well, what's wrong is what's right. We're wrong and Jesus is right. And so of course the scribes are troubled. I mean, if we're honest, we're all a bit troubled because this could prove to be a lot of damage to a whole lot of roofs, right? 
Our society is built on law and debt. To pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is to pray for the end of society as you know it. The only society based entirely on forgiveness is called like a body. Or maybe a family, a loving family. The religious society of Jesus' day was based on law and debt. The temple ran on debts. The priests literally ate the sacrifices that the people offered for their sins, their debts. The scribes controlled the people because the people needed forgiveness for their debts. If all sins were forgiven, they realized we'll be, we'll, we would be like out of a job. They were forgiveness brokers. I mean, they were okay with some, some forgiveness of sins as long as they brokered the forgiveness of sins. But if all sin was just forgiven, they had nothing to broker, nothing to sell. I mean, the temple might as well just come crashing down. It was as if Jesus broke down the walls, walked right into the Holy Holy, took the curtain and ripped it from the top to the bottom. I mean, it was like he tore the roof right off of the temple, made an open hole to heaven, a, a skylight, if you will. Their temple was built on brokered forgiveness. In the Middle Ages, the church actually financed, get this, St. Peter's Basilica with brokered forgiveness, indulgences, certificates for forgiveness that you could buy. I think we're still addicted to brokered forgiveness. It's how we religious types maintain control. We realize that if forgiveness is like everywhere and entirely free, we've lost control. And so there needs to be a ceiling on forgiveness. We need to get the ceiling back on forgiveness. I find it fascinating that there is now a ceiling on Peter's house, a roof on Peter's house in Capernaum. It actually does have one. This is the same picture now, but taken from a wider angle. 1990, the Franciscans built this, this church on stilts directly over Peter's house. To me, it says, <laughs> we've got this thing under control. It's ours now. We put the ceiling back on forgiveness. Now let me say, the start of this week, I really did not want to talk about this. But the more I thought about this, the more I felt like I must talk about this. And that is that like Peter, I once built a house. Or I thought I built a house. This is the house. And it was a great house. Some of you used to worship in that house. And it was more than concrete and steel. It was sweat and blood. And it was some of your sweat and blood. It was definitely my sweat and blood. The church grew from less than 100 people to a couple thousand. And we built this new house where the world drives by. That was our slogan. I knew I shouldn't think this way, but I did. I'd, I'd look at that building sometimes, and I'd think to myself, well, Jesus, at least I built something. And so I guess my life matters. 
I invited Jesus into the house. I, I really did. Over and over again, I invited him into my house. And I worked like crazy to preach the truth of his word. So when I read, he takes away the sins of the world, I preached, he takes away the sins of the world. And when I read, as an Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, I preached, as an Adam all die, so in Christ will be made alive. And the authorities wanted me to put a ceiling on forgiveness. And so seven years ago, they demanded that I stop saying that stuff. They're not quite sure what the stuff was, but they wanted me to stop saying saying it, and they wanted me to publicly confess that there were some people that could not be saved. And you know the name Jesus means God is salvation. There's some people that could not be saved, which in my mind meant God and Jesus could not save them, which to me sounded like blasphemy, which meant I could not say it, which meant I was defrocked, which was a titanic interrupt, and, and, I, and I washed as my house came crumbling down. God, is there something that we're missing or that we're not considering that we ought to be considering? And that's when somebody in our group, and I don't even know who it was, threw out this idea. There's an empty church building on I-70. Look out Mountain Community Church up I-70, just, just outside of Golden. Let me give you a kind of a, a, kind of a picture, a history of, of that, that church. 10 years ago, the growing Lookout Mountain Church had constructed a brand new $11.8 million building, had a thousand seat auditorium, had a kids area, had student areas, had over 400 parking spots in a beautiful location. And then a couple years ago, and, I, and I'm getting this from interviewing the staff that's still at this church. A couple years ago, the lead pastor began to teach non-truth, non-biblical teaching. And he was asked to leave the church and took a lot of people with him. Church attendance dropped from around 1,800 people a weekend to less than 200 people, and the church went into bankruptcy. They couldn't pay their bills. The bondholders foreclosed on the church, and hundreds of people, just like us, who had sacrificed and given their offerings so that their friends could come and see, could bump into Jesus, and the message of Jesus Christ could be brought to the western region of Denver, saw their faith investment evaporate before their eyes. So we said, well, let's go look at it. So we contacted our realtor and a few of us got in a car and we headed west up I-70, about 15 minutes west of Wadsworth, and we walked through this facility. And I gotta be honest, my, my first impression was, it looks like a rec center. From the outside, it does, but, which is cool. But then we went inside and it's really churchy. So all you feel like, I really like church, you're gonna love that, all right? Because it's, <laughs> it's really, really churchy. So we're like, it doesn't feel like us. So I, we, we came back and a couple days later, I took a whole bunch more people up there and we began to walk around the facility. We began to dream out loud. Like, what if we changed that and moved that and tore that out and built that up and painted that? And what, what if we added that? What if we flat irons the auditorium? And what if eventually we turned the outdoor patio area into an outdoor lobby, replaced a few windows with garage doors and put a big fire pit outdoors, all right? <laughs> now we're talking, right? That was my house. Or what I considered to be my house. And I hope you see that it was more than a house. It was my ego, my pride. That video clip was posted on their church's website. Church of like 20,000 people. D don't be mad at that church. I think it's a wonderful church. I'm actually glad they bought the building because I'm one of the bondholders. I, I didn't know we'd foreclose on <laughs> So don't be mad at that church or that pastor or the people that spoke to that pastor. I mean, they really, I don't think, n knew what they were saying or what they were doing. And anything they have done or that they do in faith is eternal seed, no matter how small the seed or how dirty the dirt. So don't blame them. And if you do, forgive them. I don't blame them. 
I, I really don't. And wherever it was wrong, I, I've said it over and over again, I forgive, I forgive. But, but I really don't blame them. Actually, I only have one to blame. And that's Jesus. Thought this through for seven years. I invited him into the house. His house. I, I really, honestly, I just agonized to preach what I thought he wanted me to preach. He even told me this is what would happen. He says it in scripture. You will be kicked out of the synagogues. That verse used to puzzle me. He told me. And he told me through visions that people had had years before. One friend had an extensive vision of this landslide just destroying that church. It lasted for like a month every time he came to church. My secretary had a vision of me constructing this steel room. I was in the room. I had just finished putting on the roof. I tried with all my might to hold the thing together and I couldn't hold it together and it just blew up shards everywhere from this steel room and then she saw God ministering to my wounds and healing me. Three and a half years before that happened, a friend had a long involved dream. In it, I took a trip with a man in a white, translucent or luminous suit who, who, who appeared to be Jesus and was Jesus, she said. And then she saw me on this broad, flat plain with lots of people, lots of people. And in the distance, on the right, on the mountains, she saw old Jerusalem. And on the left, she saw the new Lookout Mountain Community Church building that we had just built. Giant black balls began falling from the sky. They destroyed old Jerusalem. And then they destroyed the Lookout building. And then they began to fall on the broad plain. People could easily avoid the black balls by just stepping to the side. But she said she watched as I stood there, looked up at one, and would not move and the ball just crushed me I was blackballed <laughs> took me a long time to figure that one out I'm like what was <laughs> but in the in the dream this vision people picked me up and, and they carried me and she said she wrote they, they knew what to do I, I think that's the sanctuary she then writes the old Jerusalem is crumbling LMCC church building is crumbling, but the hearts of the people, the church, is not. The true church is people. You are God's sanctuary, not this building, you. She writes, as Peter's body is carried to the staircase, which led up onto this mountain thing, hope flows through the people. The man in the white luminous suit, Jesus, is there showing his delight in all that is unfolding. His delight. Now maybe my friend was smoking crack, which would be bad because she's a counselor and well-respected in the Christian counseling community. I mean, maybe, but have you ever wondered why God had the Israelites go to all that work to build old Jerusalem and that magnificent stone temple only to destroy it or arrange for its destruction? Over and over and over and over again. It's prophesied in scripture. I mean, it's clear that he arranged for it somehow or knew it would happen. Over and over and over again. Build it and then destroy it until it comes down new from heaven. Not made by human hands, but made with human lives by God. You know, we think that we're building God's city, God's house, and God's temple. And it turns out that God is building us. We are God's city. We are God's house. We are God's temple. Peter had a house. And Peter thought he was to build God's house, but it turns out 
that he is God's house. Jesus said, Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. When, when the new Jerusalem comes down in the Revelations, Peter's name is written on the foundation of the eternal city. He's like a living stone. So Peter tried to build the church and failed and wept bitterly, and then Jesus built the church with Peter. Now I'm telling you this because I think we all try to build a church, not just pastors. We all try to build a church. We all try to build a house. And God wants us to build a house, but he arranges for the destruction of that house so that we would learn to forgive and be forgiven. And that's how he builds his house. So you see, your marriage may fail, or it has already failed. I mean, I know some of you have been through things that make my stuff just look minor. Your children may fail. Your business may fail. Your righteousness will fail. Your house will crumble. Even your psyche and your body will fail, but the forgiveness you receive and the grace you bleed as those things happen will remain. That's how God builds his house. That's how God makes you in his own image, eternal, happy, and absolutely free. Life is not having everything under your control. Life is the interruptions to your control, teaching you to forgive and be forgiven. And so Jesus had come to preach the word, and he was interrupted, and he forgave. That is preaching the word. To forgive is to preach the word. God is salvation. In a word, Yahshua, Jesus. After three years of preaching the word, healing the sick, casting out demons, you know, Jesus' ministry began to crumble. Peter began to crumble. The disciples began to crumble. And the night before the temple of his body, finally crumbled and failed. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Drink the blood. The life is in the blood. So you see, we take his life and he gives his life. God forgives his life. And that's how he makes all things. And how he makes all things new, including you. And so come to the table. Uh, even if you're covered in stick and dust and broken branches and your house is falling apart, just come to the table and receive his grace. Receive his mercy. Take, take it in. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Story's not over. <laughs> Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. Invite him in and then worship. As I was preaching, as we were singing, 
Maybe you realize I've built a house. It's your life. And, and as I was speaking, as we were singing, maybe you become aware of people that had broken through the roof. You just came to the table and you saw how God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Why don't you forgive him? I think God might be saying, hey, you've been building your house. Let's forgive him and build my house. And if you say, well, I can't, I can't forgive him, well, well, in a way, you kind of you can't because everything you had was a gift anyway, but God can forgive him. He'll give, forgive him through you. It's his blood that flows through you. Take a moment now, just in silence. Think of that person. Think of those people. And in your heart, say, in the name of Jesus the Christ, I forgive. Now, if you, if you did that, you just broke the evil one's back because he lives in unforgiveness. But now maybe you're thinking something else. Maybe you were listening to my sermon and at one point I said, uh, there's only one to blame and that's Jesus. Someone once told me, Peter, you, you need to forgive God and I've thought on that for like 30 years going, how do I forgive God? God didn't do anything wrong. Well, you see, forgive means to let to allow. So you can't forgive Jesus of sin because he, he didn't sin. You can't forgive Jesus of wrong because he did no wrong. But maybe you need to forgive Jesus of right because you're wrong. In other words, you need to let Jesus be God. <laughs> You need to let God as salvation be God. So maybe in your heart you can just say this. Lord Jesus, I'm glad that you are God. And I'm going to let you be God. Because you're good. And so listen, you're forgiven and you just forgave, and that's just the beginning of a mighty river called the river of life. In Jesus' name, may you live in, in that river forever and ever and ever. It's your home, and you're his home. Amen.